Well, I chose to do a two-part series of Psalm 32 because there's so much here, as you'll see. And I really didn't get to do the text justice last week. Felt that there was enough in the text and enough of the blessing of the text to be a, a great encouragement and help to every one of us, as we shall see. The 32nd Psalm, get that sort of fingered there, put a finger in Psalm 32, and then join me in turning to Luke. Luke chapter number 15. I like these. These are called ribbons. My Bible here has got three nice big old Beresford ribbons. And uh, I use the daylights out of mine, boy, whenever I do. Um, the little ribbons are very helpful. One of the other things, too, did you know that uh, whenever you use the ribbons in your Bible, one of the things that you do is you use the ribbons to actually help to turn the pages. So that's one of the little, did I tell you that before? I didn't ever tell you that before, did I? Well, there you go. You learn something new every day in church. All right. Title of the message this morning is Instruction for the Penitent. You have a finger there or a ribbon in Psalm 32 and then another ribbon in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. But before I do that, I want to sort of give you a little bit of a review because there's a lot of material that we discussed last week. and I want to put it before your mind. In Psalm 32, you have the inscription, A-M-S-K-I-L of David, and that word means contemplation or instruction. It basically means teaching. And also, this 32nd Psalm is the second of what's called the seven penitential psalms. And remember, a penitential psalm is a psalm that was written to commemorate sorrow over sin. And so this is the second of the seven penitential psalms. Also, we connected Psalm 32 with Psalm 51 and verse 13, where there where David confesses his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah <clears throat> at the uh, behest of the prophet Nathan. You remember Nathan came and gave him a parable and uh, said, Thou art the man, David. And David fell under great conviction of God and confessed his sin before the Lord. Psalm 51 and verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return unto you. What we believe, and myself and others like me who teach the Bible, is that Psalm 32 was written after Psalm 51, and Psalm 32 is a further expansion on what God did in David's life in the 51st Psalm. You remember what we said was that Psalm 51 breathes with the passion of the moment of David's confession of sin. Remember, he was just exposed. God smote his heart and conscience with the truth through the prophet Nathan. And David sits down and writes the 51st Psalm as his immediate sort of emotional response uh, and uh, his psychological response to what God did in his life on the spiritual level. Also, it's good to note that Psalm 32 and verse 1 is the second appearance of the phrase, blessed is the one, or blessed is the man or person, lady in general. It's a sort of a generic term. And remember what we discussed last week is that the word blessed in the Hebrew language is a pluralized form. Oh, the blessednesses. It's a, a, a 
emphasis is being laid on how many and how intense the blessings are associated with the one who knows what it's like to have God forgive him or her of their sins. And also, one of the most important features of Psalm 32, and perhaps the reason why I felt the need to study this psalm in detail again, was because Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, the church at Rome, he says and he quotes uh, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 at length. And basically, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, formed the foundation for Paul's discussion and argument in the book of Romans that God justifies, that God sanctifies, and that God glorifies those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and God does that immediately. And God does that completely in the life of every saint that comes to him, just like he did in David's life. And remember the two great saints of the Bible that Paul uses to construct his argument that human beings are justified by faith. Now the word justified means declared not guilty. And so in God's heavenly court, we, those of us who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant and penitent, contrite faith and trust, we have been declared not guilty of any and all sin in the presence of the Lord. And finally, Augustine, the great saint of God, the great church father, he said that he liked this psalm because the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Now, with all that being said, you remember our first point last week was the incredible Lord who completely forgives. The second point last week was the crushing weight of unconfessed sin and relief from it. And so in the first two verses, you remember there are three key words for sin. And then there are also three key words for what God does with our sin. And the first key word in Psalm 32 in verse 1 is, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so there are three key words in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. It's transgression, sin, and iniquity. But then we have three key words or three key phrases for what God does with those those transgressions, those sins, and those iniquities. Namely, God forgives, God covers, and God does not count. I'll say that again. The good news is, is that any and all sin that the believer has committed, no matter what it is, no matter how often it was, God has lifted, that means forgiven, the idea there in the Hebrew language is that there was a burden that was lifted off of us. That was, is what the word forgiven means. Remember the word transgression means rebellion. And David said, when I sinned against the Lord, I rebelled against him. Boy, I tell you folks, there's nothing more frightening than rebelling against the Lord. You are, you are uh, skating on thin ice when you rebel against the Lord. And uh, God says that uh, David, that he lifted David's transgression. 
Also, the second key word is the word cover. In the text, it's actually the word, yeah, he says the word covered, and it's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant and the gold lid, the big gold heavy lid, which on top of the Ark had the mercy seat, and down inside the Ark had the broken law of God. And remember on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, signifying that God's mercy and the blood of a God-ordained Redeemer covers our sins and our broken the broken law. Remember the word sin in verse 1 has the idea of an archer who has pulled an arrow back to shoot at a target and the arrow doesn't even hit the target at all. It falls short. And that's what we're like in Psalm 32. We all fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans chapter number 3. So in this great teaching, God covers the broken law in our life through the blood of a Redeemer, through His mercy. And actually a fascinating feature of the Ark of the Covenant is that the cherubim are looking down upon the redemptive purposes of God in our lives. And they are the idea in the Ark is that the angels of God watch God's redemptive, salvific work in our lives with great wonder. Why would the angels be so awestruck at God's saving grace in the life of sinful sinners? Well, one reason is because God did not choose to redeem the angels that fell, even though they are also created in God's image just like we are. And God chose to do something with the human race that he did not choose to do with fallen angels. Namely, God chose to send his son to die for us, whereas the angels, which kept not their first estate, they are under the wrath and judgment and justice of God for an eternity. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know this morning that the angels that sinned against God, God chose to not extend forgiving grace and mercy toward them, but human beings that sinned against God, God chose to extend forgiving grace and mercy toward us. And this is to this idea of the cherubim having their eyes covered, the holiness of God and the wonder and the fascination that the angels have at what God has done in sending his son as a blood offering for a sinful race of human beings. This is good news this morning that God covers the broken law whenever we fall short of the glory of God. The blood of Jesus for those that come to the Lord in penitent faith, it covers. And you remember these three words transgression, sin, and iniquity. What this implies is the word transgression is our rebellion against the sins that we commit against God. The word sin, amartia in the Greek language, it's the rebellion or the sins that we commit against God's law. And thirdly, the word iniquity means twisted or crooked. And that's the sins that we commit that are against our own selves and against our fellow human beings. The wonderful reality is, is that those three words for sin cover the entire scope and gambit of all that we are as sinful creatures. And the good news of Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 is that God chooses to forgive us fully, completely, and immediately. Which brings me to the second point we discussed last week, <clears throat> the crushing weight of unconfessed sin. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. <clears throat> I want to talk about these verses because we're going to pick up our study in verse 6 of Psalm 32. Psalm 32, 3 through 5 are important because in Psalm 32 and verse number, uh, let's see, 4, David says that when we do not take our sins to God, it's as if the heavy hand of God is resting upon us. And this is something that God allows to happen in the life of his children. When we refuse to get real with God about our sins, God allows the terrible pressure of those sins to bring us back to Him. Because God is holy, He can never overlook our sin, but what God does is He allows pressure to be applied against us. And this is the pressure of our conscience. When we've done something that we know is wrong, we've said something, we've, whatever it may be, and then the pressure of God's hand... It's really the pressure of God's law and God's person and uh, the reality that we have a twisted nature that all of that comes to bear upon our heart, mind, and soul. And so what happens is God uses that pressure to bring us back to Him. You remember also, verse 5, you have the great relief from that pressure. Look at what David said. This is the longest line in Psalm 32. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the longest verse in this psalm. And what that suggests is that this is the heart and soul, the center, the root, the core of Psalm 32. And this is important because our God's forgiveness of us is to be the centerpiece God's forgiveness of us is to be the heart and soul of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Do you remember what Jesus said he, about the parable of the unjust judge or the unjust steward? You know, those who have been forgiven much are thankful much. See? And uh, he gives the parable of the, I think it was the unrighteous uh, debt collector there to illustrate that. Now then, what's interesting about, about verse 5 is it contains all the key words for transgression, sin, and iniquity that were mentioned before. And this is where our study this morning picks up. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What you need to be reminded of as we begin a new study this morning is that God's forgiveness of David was both immediate and complete. There was no waiting time. David didn't have to do some, you know, he didn't have to offer up some kind of sacrifice, although I'm sure he did. But the confession that God made to God, or that David made to God from the heart level, when God forgave David, it was complete and it was immediate. Now I want to illustrate that in Luke chapter 15. Remember I asked you to turn to Luke 15. 
<clears throat> this is the parable of the prodigal son. All right, this is an extremely important parable of Christ. And what this parable does is it tells us something about the father's forgiveness of wayward sons and daughters. But in this, is the, in this particular example, it's wayward sons. You remember the prodigal son came to his father and said, I want my inheritance early. Dad gave it to him. He left the uh, protection and comfort and guidance of dad's home. And he went out and he did his own thing. He lived a very evil and sinful life. Did things that you probably wouldn't even want to mention in church. And finally, look at verse number 16. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still long away off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against, you, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate they began to celebrate <clears throat> folks when the prodigal son came to his senses and realized how stupid he had been and he realized first that he had sinned against God this is vital there's a lot of people that are sorry that they have sinned against mama, daddy, grandma, grandpa. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry that they sinned against their spouse. They're sorry that they sinned against their kids. They're sorry that they did this thing or that thing. And sorrow for wrongdoing is always a good thing. Uh, people who are involved in Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, very often somebody that was an addict, you'll get a phone call from them. How many, how many people have ever gotten a phone call from somebody that went through AA or NA and that person asked you to forgive them for what they did to you while they were in their addiction? Anybody ever gotten a call like that from somebody? Because Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous teaches people that it's important for you to not burn any bridges. It's important for you to call someone that uh, you have sinned against or done wrong to while you were in your addiction and ask them to forgive you. And that's important. But listen, the most important thing is that sinners would come to understand that their sin are, is against God. Primarily, our sins are against God. A sinner does not feel the full weight of their sin unless they realize against whom they have sinned. They have sinned against God. And in this parable, Jesus is clear that the prodigal son realizes he sinned against God and also his father. It's possible for you to realize you sinned against your father but not realize that you sinned against God. It's impossible for you to realize that you've sinned against God and not sin against other people. Because when you sin against the Lord, guaranteed you've also done other people wrong. You remember in Psalm 51, David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. 
David didn't mean that the only person I sinned against was God. What it meant was that David ultimately realized that his sins were against God himself. Now, this is important, and the prodigal son realizes this, and that's why his repentance and his, uh, his contrite heart goes all the way to the very soul and spirit. And that's why Jesus uses this parable to teach the Father's complete and immediate forgiveness. See, the parable of the prodigal son illustrates perfectly uh, what David felt and what David experienced in Psalm 32. Is everybody tracking? Remember, God's forgiveness of you is both complete and immediate. Do you really believe that? <laughs> or is that just a nice sermon on Sunday morning? Do you live your life out daily knowing that the forgiveness that God has extended to you for your sins, past, present, and future... That that forgiveness is complete forgiveness and that it was immediate forgiveness. Isn't it wonderful to know that the prodigal son's father does not bring up and he does not seek to air out the son's dirty laundry. God Almighty, our Father in Heaven, does not want to air out our dirty laundry. He does not want to keep rubbing our face in it. That's not what he's like. We say, Lord, but I did this. And God says, what are you talking about? I put your sin as far as the east is from the west. I buried it in the sin of forgetfulness. See, we're the ones who have trouble believing that God's forgiveness is complete and immediate. But it is. And God's forgiveness that's complete and immediate for you today is not predicated on how you feel about it. Faith is not about a feeling. Faith is about facts. And the facts are, in Psalm 32, however you have sinned against the Lord, however grievous you have sinned against God, God's forgiveness of you was complete and immediate. And can you thank God for that today? Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? It would be to God that we would go forth daily living like that. I have three points this morning connected with the first two. The third point from our study of Psalm 32, Roman numeral 3, is the invitation to a celebration. The invitation to a celebration. Roman numeral number 4 is the critical importance of teaching others. And last but not least, Roman numeral number 5 is the call to all to rejoice. So I'll say it again. Roman numeral number three is the invitation to a celebration. Roman numeral number four is the critical importance of teaching others. Roman numeral number five is the call to all to rejoice. God is like the father in the, pro the parable of the prodigal son. God is standing by, waiting and yearning to forgive us immediately and completely and to restore us to a right relationship if we will merely come to him with a right heart and spirit. Let us come to the 32nd Psalm that we may find instruction and encouragement as to how God responds to the sins of those who are truly repentant. This 32nd Psalm is a celebration of forgiveness. 
and moves far beyond the assurance that God merely forgives our sins, but boldly declares the many blessings associated with God's pardon, our confession, and the celebration of our restoration. This 32nd Psalm is a celebration of forgiveness and moves far beyond the assurance that God merely forgives our sins, but boldly declares the many blessings associated with God's pardon, our confession, and the celebration of our restoration to Him. Notice in Psalm 32 and verse 6. Remember I told you we was going to be starting there this morning. <clears throat> David says, therefore. My first point is therefore. That may not seem very profound, but it is. The word therefore connects verses 6 through 11 with what was previously said in verses 1 through 5. So I'll give it to you this way. Therefore, because the Lord forgives David's sin, such forgiveness results in true happiness. Therefore, because the Lord forgives sins, such forgiveness results in true happiness. Because God forgave David completely and immediately in verse number 5, David breaks forth into sharing and celebrating the many blessings of that forgiveness. If you have never been forgiven completely and fully, you don't know what it's like to be a blessed man or woman. You don't know what it's like to have the many and manifold blessings of God be real in your life. Isn't it a celebration to know that God has put your sins away forever? And that that putting away of your sin was complete and it was immediate. It was a full pardon, any and all sin. David breaks forth into an incredible praise song, beginning in verse 6. He says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When we celebrate God's undeserved forgiveness in our lives, we are witnessing in the purest sense that our God is a God of infinite forgiveness. This forgiveness which God extends to you is to be used as a witness to the world that does not know the forgiveness of God of how wonderful, how awesome, how staggering our Father truly is. And we are to be celebrating this great forgiveness that God has extended to us. How often? As often as you will. I would say daily. When was the last time that you took time out in your relationship with God to celebrate the forgiveness that God has extended to you? When you, didn't ex when you did not deserve God to forgive you, He did. He did. He did not forgive you because of how good you were. He forgave you because of how bad you were. God does not forgive us because of how good we are. God forgives us because God is good. And this is one of the things that David highlights later on in this great psalm. When we invite people to celebrate what God has done for us, we encourage others to experience God's complete and immediate forgiveness. We become witnesses to Him, for Him. 
When was the last time you walked up to somebody and said, Hey, sir, ma'am, did you know that God has put my sins as far as the east is from the west? Did you know that God has covered my sin? God has lifted the burden. God does not write my sin debt in my checkbook, but God wrote my sin debt in his son's checkbook. <laughs> he forgave my student debt loan. Wait a minute. <laughs> Some of us probably wish that he would, but you work hard enough and you use uh, the time and resources that God's given you and what, God, what you learned in your training, you'll be able to pay it off. Trust me. Don't worry. But your sin debt has been written in the ledger in the checkbook and been charged to the account of another. God says in Romans chapter 4 that we went from being in the red to being in the black. We went from infinitely sinful, having the wrath and condemnation of God bearing down upon us, to now all the righteousness of God in Christ has been written into our checkbook. You say, well, what does my checkbook look like now, Brother Joel? Well, what does Christ's checkbook look like? Because as much as Christ has, you have. That's what Paul says in the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is in your account right now. All blessings of God. You are in the black infinitely. Isn't that wonderful to know? See? Do we live our lives that way? We live our lives like little old paupers, don't we? Oh, Lord, I hope that you'll bless me today. Oh, woe is me. That's not how God's calling us to live. God's calling us to live as if we have $1 billion that has been charged to our account in the positive, not in the negative. Join the celebration while you can because our time is short. Notice this phrase in Psalm 32. He said, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Why would he say at a time when you may be found? Well, celebrate, join the celebration, get forgiven just like David got because your time is short. While it may be found, there's coming a time in your life, Isaiah says, when the Lord may not be found. Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that wonderful? Abundant pardon is for those that seek God while God may be found. It was David's son Solomon in Proverbs chapter number 1. Proverbs chapter number 1. He said, Then they will call upon me, but I will also not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Think about that. Do not sin away your day of grace. You say, When is the day of grace? Acts chapter 17 and verse 27, Paul says this, Yet God is actually not far from each one of us. We live in a very blessed time in human history. See, every day is the day of God's grace so long as you are still on this side of eternity. While your feet, while you live in terra firma, on terra firma, you are living in the day of God's grace. Don't sin away God's day of grace. Because there's coming a time when you won't be able to receive the forgiveness of God. The good day of God's good grace will not last forever. Judgment is coming. 
And every human being, great or small, no matter the color of their skin, no matter how wealthy or insignificant they were while they were here on earth, every human being will stand before the Lord and give an account, give an account of himself or herself. When you stand again before the Lord, you're either going to have an eternal sin debt that has been charged to your account, or you'll be able to look at Christ's account and you'll be able to say, Lord, my sin debt was put on him. My sin debt was laid at his feet. It will be one or the other. Do not wait until it's everlasting too late to trust in God and receive his complete and immediate forgiveness just like David did. Don't wait before it's everlasting too late and there will be a day when it will be everlasting too late. Celebrate now while you have the chance. Join the celebration while you can because your time is short. And it's a celebration also of God's protection of those who come to him in repentance. Look at what he said. The last portion of verse 6 and on into verse 7. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall reach, they shall not reach him, excuse me. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs or shouts of deliverance. Salah. Celebrate God's protection over you by singing God's praises. For years, whenever I would have my morning quiet time, I would have a Bible, a notebook, and a songbook, a hymnal. And the reason, and I still to this day, if you've ever seen my uh, library, I have an entire section of my library about, I have probably at least half a dozen different songbooks I've picked up over the years. Why? Because some songbooks have hymns in them that others don't. And I enjoy reading hymns from time to time and meditating on the meanings of those hymns and those great songs of the faith. God's protecting grace. Sing about it. Praise Him. Celebrate it. Give time. Take time. Take hours sometimes to just ruminate on what God has done for you when He gave you complete and full and immediate pardon and forgiveness. I want to read this great hymn from Mr. Charles Wesley. It illustrates this very perfectly. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into thy haven guide, O receive my soul at last. You know, Charles Wesley had Psalm 32 verse 6 and 7 on his heart and mind when he wrote that great stanza. And think about it folks. Celebrate God's forgiveness by singing praises to him. When we're singing the great hymns of the faith in this local church on Sunday morning, be reminded of God's immediate and complete forgiveness in your life. Jesus lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Celebrate God's protection and God's deliverance from the penalty and power of your sins. The phrase, look at this, verse 6, Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place in verse 7. Now look, look up here. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32, David is hiding from God. In Psalm 32 and verse 7, David is hiding in God. David goes from hiding from God to hiding in God. That is to be the pattern and example of our lives.
See, when we let the pressure and the heavy hand of God, when we let that, sometimes people, when they feel that pressure from God, they run from God. Very often, many people do run from God. What David does is David runs to God and David hides in God. You remember, God is my rock, my crag, my crevice, my cave. All throughout the book of Psalms, we find David hiding in God and not from God. The hiding in God is twofold. David hides in God from God's final judgment, as one great Puritan wrote of yesteryear. He said, and I quote, He who thus hides in Yahweh when he may be found shall not be swept away when his final judgments are let loose like a flood of waters upon the earth. Think about that. If you're hiding in God, God will protect you from himself. Think about this. God comes himself to offer himself to protect us from himself. Have you ever thought about the gospel that way? That is the gospel. God comes himself and he offers himself to protect us from himself. The gospel is God-centered, isn't it? It's all about what God and Christ have done. And this is what David knows and David writes of in this great song. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. David hides in God's from God's final judgment. A really awesome passage on that is uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For ye are hid with God in Christ. Or ye are hid with Christ in God. One, it's both, isn't it? What are we hid from? We're hid from God's justice and God's wrath and God's judgment. But we're also, we also hide in God from the power of our own sins. And this is what I want to point out to you. Verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 32. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. A lot of the language that David employs in these passages. This suggests what God does to his enemies. God floods the enemies of David and God's own self with a flood of great waters. God washes them away. You remember what happened to the Egyptians when they chased the Israelites into the Red Sea. Was there a flood of great waters that washed the Egyptians away? There was, wasn't there? But the difference is, is the flood of great waters in Psalm 32 isn't written about God's enemies or David's enemies. It's written about David's own self. See, sometimes our greatest enemy is not the external enemy. Our greatest enemy is the internal enemy. The enemy of the flesh. And what this verse is saying is that as the mighty floodwaters swirl about us, as they seek to wash us away with, the, with our own sin nature, did you realize that God is protecting you from yourself this morning? Somebody says, well, I'm glad I'm not like Adolf Hitler. Do you want to know why you're not like Adolf Hitler? Because God has kept you from being that evil. He has. That's the only thing that has kept you from doing the things that that man did. I know we don't think of it that way, but that's the truth. At some point in Hitler's life, he was born a sweet little baby and had a mother and father. Do you ever think about that? 
And God only knows what happened along the way. At some point, that man was given up to the full weight of his own sin nature. And he ran his chain out as far as God would let him. And he cooked over 7 million people in ovens during the Holocaust. The only thing that's keeping us from that same evil, that same kind of evil, is the restraining grace of God in us. Can you thank God for that? God is keeping you from infinite evil. Think about the evil in the world. If you haven't committed that evil, it's not because of you. It's because God has kept you. That's what David says in this passage. He says, you preserve me from trouble. You're a hiding place for me, from my own self, Lord. <laughs> Our greatest enemy often is not anyone else but ourself. We are our own worst enemy. What is separating us from the vilest sinner the world has ever known? It's the grace of Almighty God. Now then, I'll have to close on point number four, maybe. The critical importance of teaching others. Once you notice verse eight with me, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God says that he wants to do four things to the restored sinner. The repentant sinner, God wants to do four things. He wants to instruct, he wants to teach, he wants to counsel, and he wants to watch over. God wants to teach, instruct, counsel, and watch over. What does this mean? One of the great points to which God is seeking to bring his people is the point of teachability. Folks, if you're not teachable, I don't know if there's any hope for you. If we will not sit down in God's classroom and let the Lord instruct, teach, counsel, and watch over us, the, verse, the ninth verse says we are like wild beasts. Are we teachable? Are you teachable? Or do you think you know everything already? We're not like that, of course. Oh, we are like that. We definitely are like that. And folks, listen, David was the king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The, he, David actually wrote scripture. Can you imagine what that would have been like? To actually sit down with a quill in your hand and on a parchment paper write holy scripture and for that scripture to go throughout all generations of, of believers and bless their soul. Can you even imagine what the, the, the incredible awesomeness of something like that? And yet David said that God was teaching him. You will never mature in your life this side of eternity to the place to where you don't need God to, to continually teach you. Those of you who are older saints that are yielding your lives to God and seeking to actually sit before the Lord and be teachable, you'll know that God's teaching you something new about who He is and about what He's done for you all the time. I'm always amazed every single, every turn in Scripture I'm learning something new about who God is, what God's like, and what God's done for me. But... Why would we need to be teachable so that we can learn how to not fall into sin again? That's what David's saying. 
The great reason why God taught David was because God was seeking to lead David and let David not do the things that he did again. And we know from David's life, he didn't commit that kind of sin ever again. He never sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah and, you know, all that he did there. He didn't do that again. He did some other silly stuff, but he didn't do that again. The reason why was because David was teachable. Now, I want to share with you the beastly nature of unteachability. Verse 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God says through David that when we do not submit ourselves to God's teaching, we are like unbridled beasts. Think about this. How are we beastly whenever we're unteachable? Well, we become unbridled in our beastliness when we allow ourselves to fall into condemnation over our sin. When you do not believe God for the full pardon and complete and immediate forgiveness that he's given you, it's like you're a wild stallion or a wild mule running amok out in the middle of, you know, no man's land. I mean, you are unteachable. You cannot be brought into submission to God. What it does is it makes our hearts chaotic and we do not trust God in faith. When we do not believe God for the complete and immediate forgiveness that God promises in Psalm 32. Secondly, unbridled beastly unforgiveness. Nothing will make you like a wild stallion that's untamable than not forgiving others even as your heavenly father has forgiven you. Christian people generally in churches generally are eaten up with unforgiveness and bitterness. There's probably people in here right now that's holding unforgiveness in their hearts against their fellow human being. And when we do that, we're beastly. Also, we're, uh, it's unbridled beastly endangerment. One of the great benefits of having the Lord put a bit in bridle on you and the Lord teaching you and one of the great benefits of submitting yourself to the Lord is that you learn how to dwell underneath your Lord's protection think about in the ancient world if there was a horse or a camel or a donkey or a mule whatever that would not be tamed the dangers that that animal would have faced you're dealing with hungry predators and hungry people <laughs> You're dealing with beastly predators and beastly people. And when we submit ourselves to God and we learn and we put ourselves under God's protecting grace, there's, a great, there's great protection that dwells within the fence of God's grace when we submit and yield our lives to Him. A clear-cut choice Look at verse number 10. Many are, the, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Look at this. You can either have many sorrows surrounding, you can either have many sorrows, or you can be surrounded by God's steadfast love in Psalm 32 and verse 10. The choice is yours. This is one of the ways that David leaves this great psalm. I'll, qu I'll quote uh, in closing. Old Testament scholar, Beth Tanner, she says, and I quote, This psalm celebrates what is the very heart of the Christian tradition, God's grace and forgiveness that allows for us to know true happiness. 
Yet amazingly, we rarely take the time to celebrate this pivotal act of daily grace. Psalm 32 gives us just that opportunity to be glad and rejoice and shout, for God does reckon us righteous indeed. Let's pray. Father God, lead these thy people into the fullness of the salvation that you have purchased by the death and burial and resurrection of thy dear son. Full salvation in Romans. Help us now. We believe, Lord. Help thou our unbelief.